Let's now turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11, and we'll read the first 13 verses. Now it came to pass, as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. So he said to them, When you pray, say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us day by day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And he said to them, Which of you shall have a friend, and go to him at midnight, and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me on his journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within and say, Do not trouble me, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give to you. I say to you, though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence he will rise and give him as many as he needs. So I say, so to you, I, so I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? In connection with our scripture reading, we also turn to Lord's Day 45. Lord's Day 45. Why do Christians need to pray? Because prayer is the most important part of the thankfulness God requires of us. And also because God will give his grace and Holy Spirit only to those who continually and with heartfelt longing ask God for these gifts and thank him for them. How does God want us to pray so that he will listen to us? First, we must pray from the heart to no other than the one true God who has revealed himself to us in his word, asking for everything he has commanded us to ask of him. Second, we must fully recognize our need and misery so that we humble ourselves in God's majestic presence. Third, we must rely on this unshakable foundation. Even though we do not deserve it, God will surely listen to our prayer because of Christ our Lord, as he has promised us in his word. What has God commanded us to ask of him? Everything we need, spiritually and physically, as embraced in the prayer Christ our Lord himself taught us. And then question and answer 16, uh, give us a record of that prayer, which we'll be considering in detail, the Lord willing, over the next number of weeks. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, Lord's Day 45 is uh, an introduction to the final uh, section of the Catechism. Uh, which expounds the Lord's Prayer. And uh, just to remind you of an important characteristic of the, the structure of the Catechism, 
and that is that it explains in quite some detail three major forms of Christian teaching. In the section on our redemption from sin, uh, the Heidelberg Catechism explains the Apostles' Creed. And then in this section that we're in on gratitude, it uh, explains the Ten Commandments and then concludes uh, with its explanation of the Lord's Prayer. And throughout the history of the Christian church, these these things have been recognized as basic forms of teaching about what uh, is entailed in the Christian faith. From the early church, catechumens uh, were, were uh, asked about their knowledge of such things as a testimony of their Christian faith. We're considering this most beloved of our confessional standards, a confession which is comforting in a deep and personal way, and which is so practical for Christian thinking and living. And I, I say that just, I guess, as a reflection of my own, again, uh, my experience of reflecting on this Lord's Day, and I was struck by its beauty and and its helpfulness. Uh, it's a a description of prayer that is worthy of our, our frequent meditation and reflection. You know, those who see the Heidelberg Catechism as cold doctrine, I think we're probably safe to say that the problem is that they have cold hearts and they uh, somehow fail to appreciate the warmth and the, the, the practical and helpful value of this, this confession of faith. Here we have faithful teaching uh, with very warm application for Christian devotion to our God and Savior. And this Lord's Day before us really gives us a concise and beautiful outline of the basics of Christian prayer. And it's a description of prayer that is uh, simple enough for for new Christians to understand and uh, yet rich enough for the most experienced and aged saints to continually benefit from. And I hope uh, that our that our theme and our outline uh, this this evening can capture something of that that simplicity and beauty. Pray in deep gratitude for God's grace, and bas- basically the outline follows a, a simple structure concerning why and how and what of prayer. We could also add and should the who of prayer, but uh, you notice that the 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 questions begin with such uh, language of why, how, and what. And so we're going to follow that structure and begin with our consideration of why uh, we need to pray. Christians need to pray. That's the language of, of question 16. Why do Christians need to pray? And uh, we're going to consider three uh, answers to that question, beginning with the fact that we need to pray as worshipers of God. Uh, we need to pray, our catechism affirms, but the answer as to why, you'll notice, doesn't focus, first of all, upon our needs. In other words, it doesn't say, we need to pray because we all have many needs. And it's true that we all have many needs, and that's one reason that we need to pray. Uh, but the first answer as to why doesn't focus upon our needs. The first reason that is given is that God requires it. And in this sense, we must uh, recognize that prayer is truly an essential part of the worship that God requires of us. 
In the first commandment, when he says, you shall have no other gods before me, you shall not bow down to them nor serve them. Our Lord is teaching us that we are to rely on no one or on nothing other than the living and true God to him, and we are to bow to him as worship, in supplication, acknowledging his greatness and our dependence upon him for all things. Prayer is not, first of all, about our needs or our desires. Uh, Think of the perfect prayer that our Lord taught us when he said, uh, when you pray, and notice he doesn't say if you pray, when you pray, say our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. From the very outset, we're taught that prayer is God-centered. It is concerned with his greatness and his glory and his kingdom. He is the God that we are to worship and acknowledge. In fact, you look at these other points that we'll consider, and the language of obligation is very strong. We must pray. We must pray from the heart. We must recognize our need. We must rest on the sure foundation. And then when it comes to what we are to pray for, our catechism brings us to what God has commanded us to pray for. So we pray as worshipers of God who seek to honor and acknowledge Him in response to His clearly revealed will that we should call upon Him. And secondly, we pray because prayer is God's appointed means for receiving His gifts. You have not because you ask not, James says. Ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened to you, our Lord Jesus said in our scripture reading uh, this evening. Your heavenly Father will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. The word ask is repeated six times at least in that passage that we read as descriptive of what is so basic to prayer. In fact, the words seeking and knocking are just uh, various ways of expressing what it means to ask persistently, earnestly, God will give his Holy Spirit, we read in uh, answer 116, only to those who continually and with heartfelt longing ask God uh, for these gifts and thank him for them. God will give his gifts only to those who continually ask him for them. Now that doesn't mean that God on the one hand, will give to us everything that we ask, nor does it mean that God uh, gives nothing but what we ask for. Yes, we are to ask continually for those things that uh, God has commanded us to seek from him, but uh, we must not view prayer as a kind of a mechanical transaction, like a candy machine. So much money in, so much candy out. So many prayers in, so many answers to our specific prayers. No, we call upon a God who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. And we ask with uh, dependence upon God's wisdom and provision in ways that we recognize we we cannot even perceive of uh, in detail in terms of what the answers to our prayers would really entail. So it's not as if to say we only get those specific things that we ask for precisely and specifically. 
No, the point is that we are to acknowledge God in all our needs. And God is teaching us to honor him and to depend upon him and to acknowledge him as the giver of every good and perfect gift. Our prayers ought to be characterized also then by that thanksgiving that recognizes that God is the giver of all that we need. So we pray as worshipers of God. We pray because prayer is God's appointed means for receiving his gifts. And we pray, thirdly, as those who have received grace. Prayer is the most important part of gratitude God requires of us. What a gracious demand. What a gracious requirement. Do you ever think of that? God has saved us by his mercy in Christ Jesus. He has done it all. And we come, so to speak, before the Lord and say, Lord, what can I do to, to express my gratitude to you? And God says, be thankful. Oh, I am thankful. What more can I do? You tell me that you're thankful. Yes, I will do that all the days of my life. I will give thanks to you. What else can I do to show my gratitude for grace? Well, you keep asking for more grace. If you really value my grace, you keep coming for more. And I'll continue to bestow my gifts and mercies upon you so that you may glorify me. Doesn't that magnify grace in our understanding of prayer? Yes, God requires it. And he is worthy of our adoration and our prayer. But we come to him as a God of rich mercy and grace who is glorified as he bestows the gifts that he's promised to give us. And if we value the grace that saves us, the way that we express that above all else is to continue to come for more. What an encouragement to pray. We must be like the Samaritan leper who returns to the Lord Jesus Christ and and falls before him and gives thanks to him for his grace. It's all of grace. It's grace that gives us the ability and the very desire to pray. It's because of the Holy Spirit's work within us by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit of grace and supplication has been given to us. And it's this spirit of grace that is promised to us, which God continually will supply us with as we ask him. So the desire to pray, the ability to pray, the access that we have to God in prayer is through Christ. By grace, prayer is a blessed duty. I think in our bulletin, I entitled the sermon, The Grace and Duty of Prayer. They go together. The honor of God and our blessing is joined together in prayer. Through prayer, God's glory and our happiness, they they coincide. So we pray as worshipers of God, knowing that prayer is his appointed means of bestowing his gifts and as those who have received grace and are deeply thankful for it. Pray in deep gratitude for grace. Secondly, we're going to look further at how we must pray. How here, especially uh, with respect to the attitude of prayer, the attitude of the heart. Question and answer 16 emphasizes the matter of the heart. God gives his grace only to those who continually and with heartfelt longing ask God for these gifts. And then 117, in terms of uh, how God wants us to pray, first, we must pray from the heart to no other than the one true God. 
We are to pray with hearts that are, that are open to the one true God. And again, we have to realize that this, uh, this definition of prayer, even the language of speaking of the one true God is in contrast. It really clashes with the most popular ideas about God that it doesn't really matter, uh, what your views of God really are as long as you're sincere. Besides, who's to say whose views are correct? That's the common idea of, of religion in the world in which we live. Well, God says in his word who we are to pray for. And there is no acceptable devotion that does not accept God's self-revelation. We pray to the living and the true God. And at the same time, we realize also that there are no correct views of God which leave the heart distant and closed to him. You see, the idea that one can have biblical, correct views of God and not trust in him, not love him and serve him, that's not a view of God that is taught in Scripture. This is eternal life that you may know the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom he has said. Those who know your name, they put their trust in you. It's one thing to have orthodox definitions of God because you've learned them and you have a kind of notional acceptance of them, perhaps. But to know God leads to prayer. Isn't that interesting in uh, uh, the Lord's description of the converted Saul when he told Barnabas to meet with him and said, Behold, he is praying, as if this is something altogether new. This is something remarkable. Here's a, a Pharisee who no doubt offered prayers throughout his religious life. Oh, but now he's praying. Now he's praying as one who has confronted the living true God through the Lord Jesus Christ. With hearts open to the one true God, we must pray. And, of course, along with that, then, with with true humility. Second, we must fully recognize our need and misery so that we humble ourselves in God's majestic presence. We must fully recognize our need and misery. What does that mean? Do you fully recognize your need and misery? Now, that, that question would make me a little bit uncomfortable. Certainly, it involves no shallow view of sin. But the fact is, brothers and sisters, that part of our misery is that we do not really adequately and sufficiently realize how needy we are. There's too much pride and self-sufficiency that still remains in us. And so really to fully know our misery involves the recognition that we can never come before God with a sense of achievement saying, Lord, I adequately know my sin and therefore I may come to you because I've met this condition. No, we come before God knowing the shallowness of our most profound spiritual experiences in relation to what is God worthy of from our hearts. And knowing ourselves, in that that way, we, we humble ourselves. That's the language of the catechism. Humble ourselves. That means that we have to be intentional about something. We need to be deliberate about about bringing to our own minds humbling considerations of God's greatness. Serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling is one of the passages that's cited in the Catechism in this connection. 
Or in Isaiah 66, where God declares himself as one whose throne is in heaven. The earth is his footstool. He has made all things. And yet to this one he looks, to those who are poor and of a contrite heart, tremble at his word. It's good for us to reflect upon the revelation of God, such as we read in Psalm 145, that speaks of his greatness. He is great and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. I will meditate on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works. All your works shall praise you. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your uh, dominion endures throughout all generations. We could look at the details of this psalm as it extols such a great God. And we humble ourselves before God by, not by eloquent words, that's not the point of it, but by honest confession of our need, by deliberate reflection upon how great and how good God is. You know, that's, that's the reason why our prayers all ought to be characterized by, by confession. Not simply confession of sin, but by declarations to God concerning who He is and how great He is. It's not to, it's not for God's sake, you might say. It's not as if we're informing God of anything when we extol Him with such language. But the aim is to bring ourselves into a deepened awareness of the great God to whom we speak, the great privilege we have in calling upon Him. Surely that's what a catechism means when it speaks of humbling ourselves, confessing our sins and our need, but before his majesty, the majesty of his grace and mercy, as well as his power and righteousness. We may then pour out our hearts to him as our refuge with confidence, with firm confidence, the catechism says. Third, uh, with confidence in Christ. Third, we must rest on this unshakable foundation. Even though we do not deserve it, God will surely listen to our prayer because of Christ our Lord, as he has promised us in his word. Because of Christ our Lord, right? That's just the the key to the whole thing. It's really what makes the difference between Christian prayer, true prayer, and every other kind of prayer. This is the unshakable foundation for our prayers. The, the foundation for our expectation that our prayers are acceptable and that our requests will be answered in grace. Confidence that we ourselves are acceptable to God because of Christ. I've, I've told my catechism students that uh, when we come to pray, it's good to uh, kind of preach the gospel to ourselves. What I mean by that is, again, rehearsing, speaking about the basis upon which we come to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's good to do that at the beginning of prayer as well as the end. We, we finish our prayers characteristically by in Jesus' name, and that's important. We ought not to do it thoughtlessly because that's the foundation of our prayer. It's based on the mediation of the Lord Jesus Christ who he is, what he has done for us. That ought to be foremost in our minds. We are accepted in the beloved. It's not some vague general idea that 
that God cares for us. That's true. That's precious for a Christian. It's not some general idea that, that he gets us. Maybe some of you have heard that slogan as an advertising campaign. I think they even were given time during the Super Bowl, different uh, snapshots of circumstances in which people face distress and trouble. And then the repeated caption is, he gets us. Rather obliquely referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. But you wouldn't really know much other than that, is this, there's some person who understands us and who can help us and who sympathizes with us. Well, that's a precious teaching for Christians. That's not the gospel. That's not the gospel that we have to proclaim to this world, that there's somebody who understands you. It's true, but it almost communicates the idea that the problem that real people really have is that no one understands them, and they're facing troubling circumstances, and God cares. You know, for many people, that's like the sum and substance of their religion. That's not the Christian faith. That's not the gospel. People need to hear about who Jesus is and what he has done, that he came to deliver us from our sins, and he provides atonement for us so that trusting in him, we are accepted by God for Jesus' sake. Yes, it is a great comfort for Christians that we have a Savior who sympathizes with us in our need, but that's because he's a great high priest who knows us indeed as one who took upon himself our nature, but he did so in order to offer himself as the sacrifice for our sins. You see, that's the foundation for our expectation in prayer. He who did not spare his own only son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things, all things that we need? There's no one that can condemn us because Christ has died and he's risen from the dead. He makes intercession for us. That's the gospel. That's what people need to hear. Now, I'm not denying that some people might be moved with a, a slogan like that and be brought to, to inquire more about the Lord Jesus. You know, there are those who have investigated such things and uh, many have concluded that this uh, this type of pre-evangelism that drops little hints but with very little content about the substance of the faith, it's not really effective. And the church should not rely on those things. The church should preach the gospel. The church should testify of who Jesus Christ is and what he has actually done to address the real problem that we all have. Because we know that that's the means that God blesses to bring people to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the foundation for our prayer. That's the sure ground for our confidence. So we must pray in deep gratitude for what also, thirdly, God commands us to pray for. In uh, a very brief way, question and answer 18 answers this. What has God commanded us to ask of him? The answer is everything we need spiritually and physically as embraced in the prayer Christ our Lord himself taught us. And that's the introduction to the Lord's Prayer. And we notice a distinction that's made here between uh, physical and spiritual needs. And uh, that's that's legitimate. That's that's biblical. We can, we can understand that. Our catechism here cites... Uh, the Sermon on the Mount, where the Lord Jesus teaches us not to be anxious and worry about uh, what we will eat or what we'll put on. But we are to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things uh, will be added 
uh, to us. And so it's a legitimate distinction. When you look at the Lord's Prayer itself, uh, we can recognize that our prayer for daily bread that pertains to all our, our physical needs. So the distinction is real, and uh, it has some uh, some significance also in terms of the difference uh, regarding the, the measure of certainty that we may have with regard to the kinds of things that we pray for. In other words, we ought to have uh, the kind of certainty that we pray according to God's will when he asked that he would give us more of the grace of his Holy Spirit. When he asked, when we asked that he would forgive our sins for Jesus' sake. But when we asked, for example, if God would, uh, provide for us, uh, a job or, uh, a different mode of transportation, uh, we do not know with certainty that this prayer is according to God's will in terms of what we might be thinking about. And so, yeah, we can probably distinguish between the, measure of certainty with regard to those spiritual things that God has promised to give. God has indeed promised to meet our needs, and we can trust him for that. But when it comes to specifics, there's a difference in terms of the confidence that we're given in Scripture itself. But it's also true that the difference could be misunderstood, or this distinction between physical and spiritual needs. And it could be misunderstood this way. If we think that, well, physical needs, that, that, that's concerned with secular matters, matters pertaining to the world and spiritual things. Spirit, well, that has to do with sacred things. As if this distinction between physical needs and spiritual needs is a difference between the sacred and the secular. Or as if it's a difference between, uh, the kingdom of God, that's spiritual needs, and uh, earthly concerns, physical needs. And if you start thinking about that, well, you run, into, you run into trouble. I think I can give some examples. If I were to get in my car on Sunday morning and uh, I turn the ignition over and my car is going, rear, 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 and I whisper a prayer, Lord, make my car start. <laughs> is that a physical need or a spiritual need? I have a responsibility of calling to get to church, and I want to be able to do that and preach, right? But at this point in time, it relates to whether or not my car will start or not. I think we could give other kinds of examples. When Samson prayed, Lord, strengthen me, as he was holding on to the pillars of that Philistine temple and was about to seek to execute his calling as judge and wreak God's vengeance upon his enemies, was that a, a physical need or a spiritual need? Well, he was praying for physical strength, but it was concerned for the kingdom of God. So I think it's probably important not to get too precise in this distinction and realize that it's our motivation, really, that is most important. And that will also relieve us from fine distinctions or debates about the difference between wants and needs. So what are needs? What are physical needs? Just a matter of survival? Just so that we can continue to exist? Or do physical needs also pertain to our calling to serve God in his kingdom? Again, the, the problem is that if we think in terms of needs and wants, we're going to divide the sacred and the secular. Well, there are the things that I need, and then there's just the things that I want. 
selfishly, with no reference to the kingdom of God. So I think we have to be careful the way we think about these distinctions and rather understand that God will give us everything that we need or desire according to his will for his glory and for our good. As he defines that in the details, or as he's revealed it in terms of those broad uh, things that we're taught to pray for. And in this connection, we have the confidence that our Lord Jesus gives us when he says, in whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. And you see, brothers and sisters, it's this that should remove doubt and anxiety for our bodies and for our souls and should very simply teach us to trust in him for, for everything. God's command to pray should fill us with that expectation of faith. As those who have received grace, as those who believe firmly in God's grace in Christ as the foundation for our prayers, and as those who continually need grace and are commanded with this gracious command to continually seek that from our Heavenly Father. Amen.